0: Here is speaker-presenter Lyle Southwell presenting the ancient codes of Bible prophecy in his live series called The Prophetic Code. You'll be amazed as he cracks the ancient codes of Bible prophecy in ways you have never heard before. Let's bow our heads. Father in heaven, we thank you so much once again for bringing us here this evening. We thank you for keeping us safe. We thank you for keeping us close to you. We thank you for the opportunity of being able to study your word. And Father, as we look at our world today, as we look at the conditions that we find in our world today, and as we recognize them as signs of the time, signs that you are coming back soon, we pray for the blessing and the presence of your Holy Spirit. We pray that you'll guide us as we read and study your word this evening. We pray that you'll surround us with your holy angels. And we thank you that you have done so night by night. And we pray that you will continue to do so. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the significant things that we have noted each night as we have come here in our world today is the push towards globalism, isn't that so? We live in a world where globalism is on the march. Now, one of the challenges with globalism is that as human beings, we tend to like our freedoms, don't we? And we're not really impressed when suddenly our freedoms start to get taken away and removed. And that catches the attention of people who are keeping an eye on what is happening in the world and creates a certain amount of friction. Now, of course, those who are instituting the concept of globalism want to avoid as much of that friction as they possibly can, don't they? And so the question is, how then do you actually accomplish bringing about the, the new world order or globalism How do you actually accomplish getting rid of people's freedoms and rights and and, and restricting our world without creating all kinds of friction amongst the population of the world? Because history bears out the fact that when the population of the world gets upset, then the population in general can bring down the leadership of the world, where there are three ways that we have spoken about before, and we'll do a little bit of a review here this evening. The first way is to begin with or or to have a crisis of international political fear. In other words, a crisis where you are in fear of losing your life. You see, fear is one of the greatest motivators that there is in our world. And if people are scared for their life, they'll say, yes, I will do anything. Take away my freedoms, whatever it might be. Just give me security. It's interesting when we look back on the uh, last 10, 12 years or so of history um, in our world right here, how that you had an incident in 2011, we had the 9-11 incident, and suddenly the mindset within the United States changed, and it went from being a mindset of freedom to a mindset of security. People were afraid of their lives, and as a result, They allowed changes to take place within their government that they would never have dreamed of in the past. So you produce international political fear. Well, there's another kind of fear that creates the same kind of uh, opportunity, and that, of course, is international environmental fear. Have we had issues over the last 10 to 12 years about global warming? Climate change, the rise of the sea, etc. The significant thing about these kinds of events is they can be real or not real. It doesn't matter either which way, it is how they are used that is significant and how they are being used. Well, of course, the other big fear, of course, is international financial fear. Have we seen this take place in the last 10 to 12 years? Yeah, the global financial crisis. And so so we see the major motivators for change taking place in our world. However, there is another way that you can bring about momentous changes in our planet without stirring up the population. And once again, to learn this one, we need to go back into history and we need to consider ancient Rome, You see, ancient Rome is so often used as an example for what is taking place in our world right now. You see, if you want to control the population of the world, if you want to remove the rights and freedoms of the population of the world, one of the most dangerous things for you is education because the more educated the population is, the more they know, particularly about history, the less likely they are to accept the removal of their freedoms, the less likely they are to respond in the way that you want them to in relationship to the fear that you are bringing on the world. And so how was it that ancient Rome was able to create an empire that controlled the world, that removed the rights of the population of the world, and yet kept them all happy? One of the major methods that they used in ancient Rome to accomplish this, was entertainment. And the question we're going to ask this evening is the same thing being used today. You see, ancient Rome reached the point eventually where in the city of Rome itself, half of the year was made up of public holidays. The empire was full of coliseums and gladiators. You had stadiums and and theatres you had amphitheatres all over the place you had entertainment and it's interesting the direction that the entertainment took you see if you went into one of the Colosseums to watch the gladiators fight the most expensive seats were the ones right down the front where you were likely to be spattered with the blood of the combatants You see, gore and bloodshed and violence and immorality became a form of entertainment. And we look back on ancient Rome with horror and we say, we could never do the same today, could we? You all went very quiet then, didn't you? Because what do we see the moment that we flick on one of the screens in our room, in our houses, I should say, that control our lives? You know how our lives are controlled by screens? How many screens do you have in your house? You think about it. Um, TVs, computers, iPads, smartphones. I, I did a count here a minute ago, and I counted nine in my home. And there's only four people. How do nine people use four screens? I mean, four people use... I'll get it right here in a minute. Nine screens. Yeah, it is absolutely bizarre. And what takes place we are being entertained as ancient Rome was into oblivion. And so what happens? We all sit back, we we are happily entertained, we are comfortable in our lounge chair, we are oblivious to what is taking place in our world And momentous changes are taking place. Now, here's an interesting question. Let's use the United States as an example because they're not too much different from us. We like to think they're a lot different from us, but I've lived there and i tell you, they are not too much different from us. What do you think the biggest media event in the United States was this year? Of course, you will say the election. And if you say that, you would be wrong. The biggest media event is Super Bowl followed very closely by the Oscars. What are people interested in? Where are they focusing? They're not focusing on the big events that are changing their lives. They are focusing on being entertained. And if you can keep the population entertained, then they are not studying their history. They are not looking at what's taking place. You can bring out all kinds of changes, and nobody does anything more than yawn, a big yawn. Well, let's turn our Bibles to Revelation, sorry, not Revelation, Daniel, the book of Daniel. It's been a while since we've been in Daniel. Let's go back there again, Daniel chapter 2, and in Daniel chapter 2, let's do a quick review of what the Bible says here in Daniel chapter 2, because this has a direct bearing on what we're going to talk about this evening. In Daniel chapter 2, you will remember that we studied about this particular image right here. The head of gold, the chest of silver, the thighs of brass, the legs of iron, the feet part of iron and part of clay, and then the rock that came and hit the image and smashed it to a thousand pieces. You all remember this one right here. Now, you will also remember that this statue was symbolic of different nations, gold, Babylon, silver. Persia, uh, 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 bronze, Greece, iron, Rome, etc. Then it would be divided up. It would never be united again, the Bible says, until the return of Christ. Now, we find that this image here, therefore, is an image symbolizing political powers and nations in our world. Isn't that so? Now, Nebuchadnezzar had this particular vision. Daniel explained it to him, and sometime later, Nebuchadnezzar got to thinking about it. You see, he occupied the prime position right here in this image. Isn't that so? Right up here, he was the head of gold. Gold was the most significant metal, it was a symbol of the sun, it was a symbol that that in his mind should have been, he should have been very, very satisfied with. But he wasn't entirely satisfied with that. Let's find out what he does in Daniel chapter 3. Nebuchadnezzar the king made an image of gold, whose height was three score cubits, and the breadth thereof six cubits is like 90 feet high. He set it up in the plain of Jura in the province of Babylon. He's just had a vision of an image, and now what does he make? One that is made all out of gold. What is it that Nebuchadnezzar is trying to communicate right here? He's like, no, 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 no. I know that God has said there's going to be all these nations that are going to come after me, and then God himself is going to rule the world. I don't like that, so I'm going to make my own image. And then he presents it to all of the most important people in his kingdom. Verse 2, Nebuchadnezzar the king made a decree together to the princes, the governors, the captains, the judges, the sheriffs, the counselors, the, the treasurers, etc., and all the rulers of the province to come to the dedication of the image which Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. And then, if we go down a little bit further, it's interesting what takes place in verse 4. Or verse 3, the Bible says the princes, the governors, the captains, the judges, the treasurers, the counselors, the sheriffs, all the rulers of all the provinces came together. And he's going to present to them this golden image. Verse 4, then a herald cried aloud, To you it is commanded, O people, nations and languages, that what time you hear the sound of the cornet, the flute, the harp, the sackbut, the psaltery, the dulcimer, and all kinds of music, that you fall down and worship the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar the king has set up. And so when we come to this golden image right here, what is the issue with this image? The issue is worship. Now you go on and you read the story. The penalty for not worshipping this image was death. Death by fire. They had a fiery furnace right there. They probably used it to melt the gold that they made the image out of. And so here we have an image that is symbolic of Nebuchadnezzar's government. Isn't that so? Let's think about this for a moment. It is an image to the government. It is a world government called Babylon. It is a union of church and state. Church and state were united in the person of Nebuchadnezzar. The issue with the image was all about how you worship. Then it continue on. The penalty for not worshipping was death. Of course, when it comes to worship, obedience is what defines worship. And so if you bowed down and you worshipped the image then your actions would speak louder than your words. doesn't matter whether you say, oh, no, no, but I'm actually a worshipper of the true God while I'm bowing down to this image. Your, Your actions would say, no, you've actually put the image there as a higher priority than God. The issue was the first commandment. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. And the righteous, Daniel's three friends, if you read the story, and I want you to go home and read the story for homework... Daniel chapter 3, it's a wonderful story. The righteous were saved from fire by the direct intervention and arrival of Jesus Christ. Now, the other night in Revelation chapter 13, we studied about two beasts. We studied the second one symbolizing the United States. Isn't that so? And as we were studying that second one, we found that the United States would make an image. Do you remember that? Well, let's think about the image that you have in Revelation chapter 13 then, when you come down to the very end of time. It is an image to the government of the beast. It is a world government called in the book of Revelation, Babylon. That world government is a union of church and state. The issue all the way through Revelation chapter 13 is how you worship Rather than being the first commandment this time, though, it is the fourth commandment. Obedience, what you actually do, defines who you worship. And the righteous are saved from fire by the direct intervention and arrival of Jesus Christ. So, is God giving us a lesson here in Daniel chapter 3 about the end of time? Yeah, He's giving us a type. It's a type and an anti-type or a symbol and then the fulfillment of that symbol at the end of time. Now, we could spend a lot of things learning many different lessons about the parallels between Daniel 3 and Revelation chapter 13. However, I want to consider for just one moment and ask ourselves the question. Here we have Nebuchadnezzar, He's going to present his golden image to all the important people in his empire, isn't he? Part of that presentation was, we read about it, entertainment, isn't that so? He's going to use entertainment as one of his forms of being able to get everybody to worship the image. And so we have Nebuchadnezzar. He would leave the court of Babylon, walk out through the Ishtar Gate, have some pleasant entertainment, followed by the presentation of his golden image to all important people in his kingdom. Do you know we have the same thing happening today? You see, today, rather than going out through the Ishtar Gate, the important people in our world go through the Ishtar Gate. It's a little bit different. There it is right there. If you look closely at it, it's got all the symbols of ancient Babylon on it. So you go through the Ishtar Gate, you go into the court of Babylon. Then you will turn right into the Kodiak Theatre, otherwise known as, in some circles, the Babylon Theatre, because of its location in relationship to the Ishtar Gate, where the important people in our world will be presented with a golden image. We call it an Oscar. Interesting how they put it right out there in front of us. They build all the parallels. They pattern it after ancient Babylon. They put it right in front of our face, rub it in our noses, and we don't even know what's going on. You see, the easiest place to hide something is in plain sight. But there is a message here. Entertainment is controlling our world, and we need to be aware of it before we get caught in the traps that it has created for us. Now, I could go on about many different aspects of how entertainment is controlling our world, and particularly coming out of Hollywood. By the way, do you know what the word Oscar means? It means divine power. That's the meaning of the word Oscar. So you give somebody a golden image of divine power. Is entertainment controlling our world? Think about it. The average child today spends 35 hours per week watching a screen. Most of us only work 36 or 38 hours a week, don't we? In contrast to that, the average child spends 86 seconds per day speaking to their father. So who is raising our children? They, they put recording devices on like a 1,000 children and I think some of, the, some of the young people here obviously get quite a bit more than that. That's why you're here, right? Yeah. They put recording devices on children, sent them home with their children to find out what was actually happening. 61% of television contains violence. 36% of children live in a home where the television is never shut off. 54% of children have a TV in their bedroom Desperate Housewives was the most popular show with kids aged 9 to 12 in 2005. Now, the Bible outlines a principle. Let me show you what the Bible says in 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians, chapter 3. I don't share this stuff with you to give you all a hard time this evening, but I do share it with you to stop and consider and to challenge yourselves. We should challenge ourselves every now and then, shouldn't we? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, where were we? Second Corinthians uh, chapter three, page four hundred and sixty-seven. Because I, one of the things that I one of the claims I made at the beginning was one of the reasons that our world is able to be changed the way it is, is because we're being entertained into oblivion, oblivion didn't I? Is the evidence here? Yeah it is. Notice what it says over here. Uh 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 18, the Bible says, But we all with open face Beholding and as in a mirror the glory of the Lord are changed into the same image from glory to glory even as by the Spirit of the Lord. Now let me ask you a question. How many of you want to become more like Jesus Christ? I know that I do. And the Bible says that if you want to become more like Jesus Christ, the way to do it is to behold Jesus Christ, to look at him, to study him, and to copy him. You see, what the Bible outlines here is a law of the mind. What you look at is how your brain wires itself, and that's what you become. And so if we look at violence and anger And negative things in our life, consider the entertainment we have taking place around our world right now, you know, they get all of of the symbolism happening, don't they? We ask ourselves the question, is it changing things? Has Has the Hollywood changed our society in the last 50, 60 years. Well, let's think about it. We looked at at this um, right at the beginning. Let's consider it again. In the 1940s, they did a a survey amongst teachers to find out what were the major issues that they had to deal with at school, the things that they really struggled with. Talking out of turn was number one, chewing gum, making noise, running in the hall, cutting into line, dress code infractions, and littering. And then in the year 2000, they repeated exactly the same survey. What are the most challenging things that teachers are dealing with at school? And here they come, drug abuse, alcohol abuse, pregnancy, suicide, rape, robbery, assault. Has anything changed during that time? It is what we are looking at, friends, it is what we are beholding. Three, three and a half thousand years ago, God appeared to Abraham in the burning bush and proclaimed himself as the great I am, the self-existent one, the ruler, creator of the whole universe. A couple of thousand years later, Jesus stands in front of the Jewish leaders and repeats it, proclaims himself as the great I am. And then last year, Beyonce came to Australia and proclaimed herself as the great I am. We need to be aware of what is taking place in the world. Let's, let's, let's turn our Bibles over to uh, Timothy. 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy chapter 3, page 480. 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 1. This know also that in the last days... Perilous, dangerous times will come for men shall be lovers of their own selves, covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, without natural affection, truce breakers, false accusers, incontinent, fierce, despisers of those that are good, traitors, heady, high-minded, lovers of pleasure, more than lovers of God. Do we find that in our world today? Yeah. You know what really hurts me about this passage right here? Verse 5. Because in verse 5 it says this, having a form of godliness. It's not even talking about people who are not Christians. It's talking about people who claim to be Christians. And that's the tragedy of it. However, let me back up to verse 4. Notice here it says, traitors, heady, high-minded, lovers of pleasure more than Lovers of God. And let's consider our world here in Australia right now and ask ourselves the question, have we become lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God? Let me give you an illustration. Have you noticed how people will spend large amounts of money, travel at, arise at stupid o'clock in the morning, do travel long distances, stand in a long queue, pay some more money and then sit on a hard aluminium bench all day to watch the footy. Now, don't get me wrong here. I'm not against getting out and having a good time. But I want to draw a contrast from it. Let's say that you offer them in contrast to that, something just down the road where there's a nice, warm, air-conditioned building um, with padded seats where they can come and worship God. Where are people's priorities today? Where do they want to be? The Bible said they would be lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God. I'm not against having a good time and having fun together as a family and doing good, healthy exercise. Don't get me wrong. But I am against making these things into a God that is more important than Jesus Christ. And here in Australia, we know where our God is, don't we? Yeah? That's the simple reality of our world. And this particular point, I often get wives and they will nudge their husbands and say, You need to listen to what he's saying. <laughs> Here's your turn to get nudged back again. Where are we? First Timothy chapter two and verse nine. And the Bible lays down a challenge right here for The women as well. This applies equally to men, by the way, I should say. Of course, all things, all scriptures apply equally across the board, don't they? But of course, Paul knows where uh, the particular weakness is, and he makes some comment here. He says, like manner also, that women should adorn themselves or clothe themselves in modest apparel, with humility, soberness, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly array. Some people get worried about the braided hair. This was not putting their hair in a braid. Um, this was where they would the, the the wealthy people, and you can you can see it in the British Museum. They would beat gold out into sheets and make it into thin pieces of cotton and run it through their hairs. Very very, um, you know, incredibly wealthy kind of a way. But you know, God speaks about some rather specific things. He lays down some challenges right here. You know, we should we should shine forth as Christians and the devil will try and do whatever he can to destroy the image of God in us. And the question that comes through my mind is this. When it comes to these kinds of issues, where do you actually draw the line? You know, we, have to, we have to stop and ask, don't we? We have to sit down and talk to God and say, where do we draw the line? I think most of us would agree right now that the devil on occasions has been successful in destroying the image of God in human beings. Isn't that so? Yeah, this guy holds the, uh, the Guinness World Book of Records for body piercing. Yeah. All right, so how then should we live? It's one thing to stand up here and say, you know, don't do this and don't do that and don't do the other and, you know, think about this and challenge yourself with all kinds of things. All right, then let's look at the positive side for a moment. Maybe we should get rid of that picture. I can see some people sitting there looking at it like, ooh, <laughs> All right, so let's move on. Let's turn over to uh, 2 Peter. In 2 Peter chapter 1, where the Bible says this in verse 3, according as His divine power has given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness through the knowledge of Him that has called us to glory and virtue. And you say, well, what is that verse all talking about? Do you know in this one verse right here, you have a summary of everything that it means to be a Christian? Yeah, just one verse. Let's work our way through it, shall we? The Bible says, according as His, who's that? Whose divine power? God's divine power has given us how much? What's the next word? All things that we need for two things. What are those two things right there? Life and godliness. Jesus said, I have come that you might have life and that you might have it abundantly. And so we ask ourselves the question, well, how do I have that abundant life? How do I experience that abundant life? Because that's really what we're all aiming for in life, isn't it? We all want to experience that in our lives. So how do you have that abundant life? Well, let's think about it for a moment. In the Bible, the Bible speaks about three aspects of life that we receive from God. Number one, we receive physical life from God. We are living, breathing human beings by the gift of God. Isn't that so? Yeah? Absolutely. And if we are living, breathing human beings by the gift of God, then God has given us the gift of physical life. But more than that, God then says, no, but I will give you spiritual life. Doesn't He? He wants you... I want you to be alive spiritually. And then more than that, God comes along and says, "And I also want to give you eternal life. Isn't that good news? And when you combine all those three things together and you have physical life, you have uh, spiritual life, and you have the promise of eternal life, then you truly have life and you have life abundantly. I've got to tell you, if you ever want to mess up your life, Don't give your life to Jesus Christ. But if you want your life to be an adventure, an adventure of living with Jesus, an adventure of living by faith, of following God, I have to tell you, my life has been an amazing adventure and God has done amazing things in my life. You would just not believe where God brought me from and what He has done with me. And it's all because of my decision to follow Jesus Christ and to give my life to Him. It's all based on that. There are lots of ways of messing up your life. Following Jesus is not one of them. He wants to give you the best that is in life. The Bible goes on and says godliness, life and godliness, these two things together. And of course they go together because the word godliness means god-likeness. He wants you to live a life like Jesus lived his life. Isn't that so? Yeah. Yeah. So if we're going to live a life like Jesus lived his life, and we're going to receive this divine power, because we don't have the power in and of ourselves to receive all of these gifts, do we? But if we're going to receive this divine power into our life to live a godly life, then we need to know how are we going to actually access that divine power. Isn't that so? Well, it goes on in the passage right here in verse... Uh, Three, and it says the next word here after godliness is the word through. And when the Bible says through, it's now going to tell you through what you're going to receive that divine power through the knowledge of him that has called us to glory and virtue. Now, if I was to step outside of this hall this evening and I was to stop the first person that I met on the street over here and ask them, do you know about God? What are they going to say? Everybody's heard of God. There's nobody who hasn't heard of God here in Australia. Does that mean that they have spiritual life? Does that mean they have the promise of eternal life? No. So when the Bible speaks about through a knowledge of God, it is obviously speaking about more than just knowing about God. It's talking about knowing God as your friend. So what do you get through knowing God as your friend? Through having a connection with God. The Bible says in verse 4, whereby, in other words, by this, by knowing God. By knowing God are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises that by these, that's the exceeding great and precious promises, you might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. So let's think about it for a moment. There's some big promises here, and I love the way that Peter says this, because he uses a whole bunch of redundant words. He says, whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises. He could have just said, whereby giving unto us precious promises. Exceeding great and precious promises that promise us that we can be partakers of what? The divine nature. What kind of a nature do we have naturally as human beings? The Bible says that all have sinned and fall of, fallen short of the glory of God. By nature, we naturally have a sinful nature. And God says, I want to come in. I want to change you. I want to turn you around. I want to make you into a new person. And I am going to use my divine power in your life to do so. Praise the Lord. And it is all based it is all based on this one concept of knowing God. That's why that's why Jesus says he says behold I stand at the door and knock. And if anyone opens the door and lets me in, I will come in and sit down and we will share a meal together. And as we mentioned one other time, it's international language whenever people want to draw close together when they want to be friends. We get together and share food together. Isn't that how we do it? You can go anywhere in the world. You can go to any culture, any language, any part of the planet, and it is always the same. And God is speaking to every one of us and saying, I want to have a relationship, a friendship with you. So if God wants to have a relationship or a friendship with us, the question then comes in is how do we actually do that? How do you do that? You see, it's a little bit hard when God is in heaven. A whole lot easier when Jesus was here on this earth, but we can't see him, can we? Does that mean that we cannot have a relationship with him? No, of course not. When I first started going out with my wife, I went out with her for two weeks and then I asked her to marry me. And then I married her Ten weeks later, I'm not recommending that particular method to everybody, but that was 18 years ago, praise God. But during that 10-week period that we were engaged, we actually spent quite a bit of time apart from each other. We couldn't see each other. She was in Pennsylvania, I was in New Hampshire. Could we not have a relationship while we couldn't see each other? This was before the days of Skype. So the young people here, they're thinking, you know, why couldn't you see each other? Well, back then, Skype didn't exist. In fact, the internet didn't exist. Well, it kind of did, but not really. Could we not have a relationship because we couldn't see each other? No, we could have a relationship because we could communicate, couldn't we? Yeah, absolutely. So um, I... Believe it or not, I even wrote letters during that time period, but I did make phone call every night. And back in that day, those days, that was expensive. Okay, so how do we communicate with God? Let's consider about this for a moment and let's look at how we can actually communicate with God. How do we, what is the primary way that we communicate with God? Through prayer. Let's turn to Psalms, Psalms chapter 55. Psalms chapter 55 and I'm going to talk about two kinds of prayer. The first kind of prayer that I'm going to talk about is what I term formal prayer. And this is the kind of prayer when you find some time alone by yourself to seriously connect with God. And that's important for everybody in your connection with God. You need time alone to connect with God. Psalms chapter 55, down in verse 17, this is what David said. He said, evening and morning and noon will I pray and cry aloud and he shall hear my voice. So when we consider David for a moment, David was praying how many times a day? He would pray three times a day. Now, the Bible doesn't say you have to pray three times a day. It doesn't specify any amount that you should pray a day. But this is what David did. He said three times a day aside to spend time with God in prayer. Now we live in a busy society, high pressure society, don't we? We might not have that much time in our lives, right? Spend time with God three times a day in prayer? He, David lived in, a, in an agrarian society when, when, where things were much slower than they are right now, don't, didn't he? Let me ask you what was David's job? What did he do for a living? He was king of a whole empire. And when you look at how big that empire eventually got, you know, from the river Euphrates all the way down to the river of Egypt, I would say that he lived a probably a fairly high-pressure lifestyle, and he was a busy person, but he did not let that stop him from connecting with God, did he? Who else prayed three times a day? And what was his job? He was prime minister, and his empire stretched from pretty much Afghanistan to Egypt and across to Greece. That's a big chunk of land, isn't it? And he found found time to spend time with God in prayer. Now, this is not the only kind of prayer that the Bible speaks about. In 1 Thessalonians, Paul makes a simple statement and he says, pray without ceasing. So how do you actually do that? Pray without ceasing. Obviously, it's not the kind of, prayer where these men would stop what they were doing and they would uh, spend this time um, alone with God, connecting with, with him in prayer. So how do you pray without ceasing? I look at it a little bit like this, a little bit like our typical broadband connection. Now, when I wake up in the morning and I open my computer, it logs onto the internet, doesn't it? And my email software is open, and so the moment it logs onto the internet, a whole bunch of messages come down on my email, I check those messages, and I shoot a bunch back the other direction, and away they go. And then my computer stays open all day, and as it is open all day, during the day, there will be messages, various messages that will come in, won't there? Email messages, Skype messages, Facebook messages, etc. and there will be various messages that will go back out again, email, Skype, Facebook, whatever else it might be. That's how it works, isn't it? And so what I have here is, while ever my computer is open and logged onto the internet, there is an open connection of communication with the rest of the world, isn't there? Praying without ceasing is a little bit like that. Connect with God first thing in the morning. Do it before you start anything else. You know why? If you don't, something will distract you, guaranteed, and you won't get back to it. Connect with God first thing in the morning. Open the line of communication. Log on to the connection with heaven. Once you've logged on to the connection with heaven, then leave that connection open all day long, so it doesn't matter what happens during the day, you can talk to God about it. And God can talk to you about it. You can ask for directions. God can speak to you and give you direction and guidance. You know, sometimes I think that um, uh, one of the challenges that we have is that we spend too much time bumping into God rather than actually connecting with God? Let's go to the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John. And let's consider for a moment how God communicates with us. Because communication needs to be two directional, doesn't it? To be able to build a relationship? You ever met one of those kinds of people where the communication is only ever one way? At you? You meet somebody like, you don't really build a friendship with that person, do you? Because you can't get a word in any so Communication needs to be two directional. And there are many ways, and I could list many, many different ways that God speaks to us here. He speaks to us through our conscience. He speaks to us through, through providence. He speaks through other people. He speaks uh, to our mind. He speaks uh, through dreams to some people. Many different ways that God speaks to us. But probably the primary way that God speaks to us is found right here with an interesting statement. Um, Where are we? John, Gospel of John, chapter 6, verse 53. Jesus says, Truly, I truly, I say unto you, except you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Then he reverses the equation. Whoever does eat my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I will raise him up at the last day. Now, let's think about this for a moment. Here Jesus says, except or unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you don't have eternal life. Hmm. Then he goes on, you do, do, you do eat it, you have eternal life, and I will raise you up at the last day. What is Jesus talking about? Is Jesus recommending cannibalism right here? No, of course he isn't. The disciples didn't know what he was talking about. And if you read on down through, they're like, ooh, this is a really hard saying. Who can understand it? I had no idea what he was talking about. So Jesus comes back and he explains exactly what he's talking about. We come down a little bit further. And we find in verse 63, Jesus says this, it is the spirit that gives life. The flesh, in other words, my literal body profits nothing. He says, the words that I speak unto you, they are spirit and they are life. So how do we receive those words? Where do we find the words of Jesus? Well, we find the words of Jesus right here, beginning in Genesis and ending in Revelation. These are the words of Jesus. These are the words that he speaks to us. And Jesus says, unless you eat it in, you have no life. It's as simple as that. Sometimes I've had people come to me and even young people at times, they say, oh, yeah, I tried Christianity, it didn't work for me. So I gave up on it. And it it, it breaks my heart and I sort of wonder, well, you know, where where did they go wrong? Why didn't it work? How can Christianity not work? Sometimes I think that we tend to treat our Christianity like um, McDonald's fast food. Now, McDonald's fast food, we're we're all familiar with Maccas, right? There are a number of advantages at eating at Macca's, aren't there? Let's think about the advantages, okay? Um, You never have to wash dishes. Is that an advantage? Yeah, that's an advantage. You never have to cook. Is that an advantage? You never have to wait for your food because they have drive-through, Right? You never have to even stop and sit down to eat your food because you can eat it in the car while you are driving. Imagine how much time and effort you would save if you ate all of your meals at Macca's. And you can do that. They're open all day. You can have breakfast, you can have morning tea, you can have lunch, you can have afternoon tea, you can have dinner, you can have supper, all at Macca's. But you're all laughing at me because you're all thinking like, yeah, well, let me ask you, how long are you going to last if you actually do that? Not too long at all. In fact, there was a guy who tried it and I think he was going to try it for two months and he made it to about six weeks and his doctor told him that if he didn't stop, he wasn't going to make it out of, last out his two months. Super Size Me if you want to look it up. It's an interesting documentary. Okay, so if you eat your entire life, you're eating that just at Macca's, you are going to die most likely of a heart attack or malnutrition, right? We're all familiar with that. Something you don't want to do too often. Now, let's compare that then for a moment to Christianity. As Christians, sometimes we can treat our relationship with God like McDonald's fast food. So we wake up in the morning, it's like, oh, I'm a Christian. So that means I spend some time with God. Oh, Lord, please bless me today. And I read one verse of scripture, done, out the door. (laughs) Fast food, right? How long is your Christian experience going to last if you treat your connection with God like that? Not very long. You're going to die of a heart attack, just a different kind of heart attack. Your heart will grow cold towards God and it won't work. How would it work for those of you who are married if you treated your relationship with your spouse like that? Would that work? You know, you just sort of bump into each other on odd occasions here and there. No, that's not how you have a relationship. You have a relationship by connecting with the person that you are in a relationship with. That's how you have it. You know, it reminds me of the story, and this is an illustration. Jesus was traveling to... Um, through the town of Capernaum to Jairus. Now, Jairus had a daughter that was sick. She was about to die, and he's traveling there to heal her. By the time he got there, of course, she was dead, and he raised her back to life. But while he's walking through the street, the Bible says the crowds were thronging him. In other words, he was jam-packed in that street. You ever been really jam-packed in a crowd? I made the mistake one time of saying, let's go and see the Sydney fireworks this year. And we got down there by the Sydney Harbour Bridge and we were just jam-packed. I mean, you're just, you're just jam-packed and you move with the crowd, as the crowd moves, and you've got somebody here who you have never met before and somebody here, who you, and, somebody here who you, and you're having conversations with people you've never met before and getting into very intimate, close spaces with them. And so Jesus is jam-packed in this narrow street with all of these people and suddenly he says, who touched me? Would that make any sense? His disciples are like, what do you mean, who touched you? You're in the middle of a crowd. And he said, no, virtue has gone out from me. And there was a lady in that crowd who had a disease. She had been menstruating nonstop for like 10 years or so, like continuously. And she'd gone to every doctor she could. And she eventually realized the only way she was ever going to be healed was if she met Jesus. Jesus. She sees Jesus, she thinks this is my only chance and in this crowd I will never get to speak him and she reaches out by faith, reaches through the crowd and touches the hem of his clothing and that touch of faith, God healed her on the spot and she knew it. Now there's an interesting object lesson right here because there were lots of people bumping into Jesus, weren't there? but there was only one person in that crowd that connected with Jesus, a vital connection. And it's all about connecting with Jesus. That's what it's all about, friends. We can get distracted by so many other things, but unless we connect with Jesus, we have nothing. Let me show you something something else. One more thing in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 10. And here we have the story of Cornelius. In Acts chapter 10, we have the story of Cornelius and it brings with it a challenge. You see, the Bible says, there was a certain man in Caesarea called Cornelius, a centurion of the band called the Italian band, a devout man, and one that feared God with all his house, which gave much alms, that's not these kind of alms, but offerings, to the people and prayed to God always. He saw in a vision evidently about the ninth hour of the day an angel of God coming into him and saying unto him, Cornelius. Now, let's stop here for a moment. Here you have Cornelius, he's in his house in the middle of the day and he's praying and we find out that he is praying for light, for truth, for knowledge, for understanding. He wanted to know what the truth was and so he prays about it, it's the middle of the day. God does something special. God hears Cornelius' prayer in heaven and God says, okay, I'm going to do something different for Cornelius than he has done for most of us. I know some of you have had experiences with angels because I've spoken to some of you, but not everybody. And so God in heaven, hears Cornelius and he commissions an angel. He says, okay, I want you to do is I want you to fly down there and I want you to talk to Cornelius. So the angel leaves heaven, he flies all the way down to this earth and in a blink of a moment, the angel turns up in Cornelius' house. Cornelius sees him there. Now, place yourself in Cornelius' shoes for a moment. If I was earnestly praying for light, for knowledge, for truth, for understanding, and an angel turned up, I would be excited because I would be like, wow, I'm going to hear this from an angel. Wouldn't that be exciting? At the same time, it would be a little bit scary. And we find that Cornelius was a little bit scared at the same time. It goes on as we work our way through in verse 4. It says, and when he looked on him, he was afraid and said, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, Your prayers and your alms, or your gifts, are come up for a memorial before God. Now send men to Joppa and call for one Simon, whose surname is Peter. He lodges with one Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the seaside, and he shall tell you what you ought to do. Think about this. The angel is standing right there in his living room. He's ready to hear it. Now, we know that that angel could share the gospel in a very eloquent way. Here is a sinless being. He could give a perfect presentation of the gospel message, couldn't he? But he doesn't say anything about what Cornelius has been praying about. He says, no, 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 no. He says, you go get Peter. Peter. And Peter will explain it to you. Well, why Peter? We know Peter, right? Peter was the person where Jesus says to him, get behind me, Satan. Peter was the person where Jesus says, you know, when you're converted, he wasn't even converted right down the end of Jesus' life. Peter was the person who denied Jesus three times before he died. We can go on through a whole long list. Peter was the one who had a big mouth and always put both feet into it, wasn't he? sinful, failing, weak human being that Peter was, and the angel says, no, I want you to go and get Peter. So why get Peter? Why not? You're there, just share it with him. The answer is very simple. Two reasons. Could the angel share a testimony of the power of God's grace to change his life? No, the angel can't share that testimony because the angel hasn't had his life changed. Had Peter had his life changed? Did God turn him around and make him into a new person? Absolutely he did. And he could share a powerful testimony. He could say, this was what I was like. I was like this and I was like this and I was like this until I experienced the grace of God. And then it did this and this and this to me and this is how I'm a new man. That's the first reason. The second reason is this. The work of sharing the gospel was not something that was entrusted to angels. If it was entrusted to angels, it would have been finished generations ago. It was given to us. And with this story comes a challenge to every single one of us here to share the gospel in preparation for the return of Jesus Christ. Friends, Jesus is coming soon. And we have a message to share. It's found in the book of Revelation. Let's turn to Revelation chapter 14. The Bible predicts it over here in Revelation chapter 14 under the symbol of three angels. A global movement. In fact, in Matthew chapter 24 and verse 14, Jesus says, When this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached as a witness unto all nations, then shall the end come. We have the fulfillment of that prophecy in Revelation chapter 14. We have the gospel going to all nations. Revelation chapter 14. Let's go over there. Revelation chapter 14, beginning in verse 6, the Bible says, I saw another angel fly in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to those that live on the earth, to every nation, kindred, tongue, and people. This is the everlasting gospel, and it is going to the whole world. Isn't that so? So here he's going to preach it to every person on planet, and the first word of verse 7 is saying. So now he's going to present the everlasting gospel, isn't he? So if you want to know what the everlasting gospel is, that goes to the whole world just before the return of Christ. You have it here, right? Well, then let's read it, read down through it and see what it says, saying with a loud voice, Fear God and give glory to Him, for the hour of His judgment is come, and worship Him that made heaven, earth, the sea, and the fountains of waters. Let's consider this for a moment. What is the Bible actually saying right here? When the Bible says fear God, that means to honor God and to turn away from evil. Bible says Job was a man who feared God and turned from evil. Give glory to him the Bible says whether you eat or whether you drink or whatever you do however you live your life live it to the glory of God. It refers to our lifestyle, how we live our lives. Why? For the hour of his judgment is come. Present tense, it is taking place right now. And worship him, what is the issue? At the end of time, what is the issue in the book of Revelation? It's all about worship. How do we worship God? Worship Him who made the heaven, the earth, the sea, and the fountains of waters. Now that's a direct quote from another portion of the Bible. Where's that a quote from? Does anybody know? That's from Exodus chapter 20. That's the fourth commandment. That's the Sabbath right there. And so when the Bible brings up the issue of worship as a part of the everlasting gospel, at the end of time, it references and directs us to the Sabbath. Then the Bible goes on in verse 9, sorry, verse 8, they followed another angel saying, Babylon is fallen, is fallen. The great city, because she made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of the, her fornication. A third angel followed them saying with a loud voice, if anyone worship the beast and his image and receive his mark in his forehead or in his hand, the same shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God. Then it goes down to verse 12. Here is the patience of the saints. Here are those that keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. And heard a voice from heaven saying unto me, Right, blessed are the dead which die in the Lord from henceforth. Yes, says the Spirit, that they may rest, sleep in the grave from their labors, and their works do follow them. Friends, do you know what I just read to you right there? I read a summary of everything that I've presented in this series of presentations because God has challenged us to share the everlasting gospel. If you go back through the presentations, you'll find every single one of them came out of that passage right there. This is what God has commissioned us to do. He has commissioned us to do it because He is coming back soon. And how does He commission us? The Bible says that we are ambassadors for God. Know you not that you are ambassadors for God, for Jesus? The question is, what is an ambassador? How can we be an ambassador. An ambassador, friends, is a representative, isn't he? He lives in a foreign country, doesn't he? He lives in a country where his citizenship is not located. Isn't that how it works? His citizenship is somewhere else, and he is a representative of that country. Jesus calls every single one of us to be citizens of heaven and to be representatives here on this earth of the government. Of heaven. My question to you this evening is this. How many of you want to be an ambassador for the government of heaven, an ambassador for Jesus Christ? Is that what you want? I know what. that's what I want. Praise God, friends. God is so good. Let's bow our heads as we pray. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for the privilege that it is to be able to study your word once again and to be challenged by your word, not to live how the world lives, but to live how you outlined it for us, which is the opposite of what we find in our world today. You've challenged us to live in a relationship with you, a relationship with the ruler and creator of the universe. You've challenged us to share this with others. And Father, we pray that every single one of us here will be an ambassador for you, a representative of your government to share with others the message that you have given to us. And so we pray for your blessing now. Keep us close to you. Help us to become more like you every day. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to an M24 Media production of The Prophetic Code by speaker-presenter Lyle Southwell. For more information, visit KnowTheCode.global. Or call 3ABN Australia Radio on 02 4973 3456.